Hi, welcome to episode two of The Router. This week, John and I discuss Apple's new hackable phone? Question mark? Also, one nation-state threat actor who might benefit from instituting their own security policy. Thanks for joining us as we get into these topics and more this week on The Router. All right, John, how's it going today? I'm doing all right, Jason. How are you doing? I'm hanging in there. This is The Router Podcast. We talk about tech and cybersecurity. My name's Jason. John, you're my co-host, and this is episode number two. Uh, Before we get started today, I want to ask you, What's been going on in your in your world this week? Yeah, yeah. So I am at the stage where I need to replace my cell phone. So that's uh, that's a thing. And there's a lot of cool devices out there. There's a lot of cool devices on the horizon. So I got a, I got some research ahead of me. There's a phone from Microsoft coming out called the Surface Duo that has a uh, interesting take on the folding screen mm-hmm. that seems like it's going to be a little hardier than some of the offerings from Samsung lately. So I, I'm I'm probably going to hedge my bets and wait for that one just to see how it turns out. Sure. But yeah, I I need a new cell phone. I've been looking around and uh, that's it. What about you? Yeah, this last week uh, I was in Pittsburgh and had the opportunity to stumble into a children's bookstore. Children's books are the best. They're different shapes, they're different sizes, they're full of colors, and I was kind of overwhelmed in this solely children's bookstore, and I came across a book that caught my eye, and without even thinking, I was purchasing it, and it was called Baby Loves Cody by Ruth Spiro and illustrated by Irene Chan. And as it sounds, it's a book about babies coding or, you know, teaching babies, you know, coding. Interesting. Yeah. It's one of those dense, hard books, like hard cardboard, so you can't rip the pages and lots of colors, lots of illustrations, not too many words. So, you know, how do you explain coding with such limited words? How do you explain coding with pictures? Yeah. But it's 22 pages. It's meant for three-year-olds. It's actually part of a larger series called baby love science and i read it now twice i think it does a really intelligent job of kind of explaining this idea of doing one step doing the next step doing the step that follows and it even goes as far as to say this is an algorithm Mm. (laughs) and puts that word into the actual book and uh yeah i have no intentions of gifting this to anybody (laughs) i'm not entirely sure what i'm gonna do with it other than set it on my bookshelf and pull it out every once in a while but that was that was a purchase for you not for a baby in your life (laughs) yeah well maybe yeah yeah i don't know we'll see i might find somebody to gift it to but lend it to (laughs) yeah yeah i need that back this this led to a, a thought though that i had which this book tries to introduce very, very young people to coding. And coding and programming and technology is a big part of everybody's lives, but everybody's not going to have a chance to program in their job. However, programming can be fun. Uh, we've talked about that before. It can be yeah. therapeutic, I guess, in a way. It can make your life simpler if you're automating tasks that you do every day that are mundane or monotonous, I guess. And I was thinking that this 
introduces the idea of coding to young kids who might use coding as a hobby, which I, I think a lot of people do now, but mainly people who are in technical fields. Sure, sure. We work on cars, build cars as a hobby. A lot of people who do that are not necessarily mechanics. A lot of people do sewing or needlework as a hobby, and I don't think they're all seamstresses. There's a lot of things that people do that are contrary to their 9 to 5, and I guess I just started to foresee this world in the future where maybe people program as a way to hobby. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that there's a lot of potential for that because, you know, when, when people do things like build cars and knit scarves and that, you know, there, there's a product at the end. Yeah. And there, there's something they can see, they can enjoy, and they can take pride in. Show their friends. And show their friends and impress their friends and, and utilize, you know, too. So with coding, it's a little more abstract you know, there's not a, a physical thing you can point to at the right. end of the day. And I think that this idea of introducing coding in a sphere other than employment, you know, as a job could go far to kind of dispelling that notion that coding is only if you're getting paid for it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a really interesting concept. And I think that it will probably have a lot of support and a lot of people taking part in it in the future. Yeah. And you see a lot of people coding that they're a janitor or they're a finance person and they're uh, uh, some other unrelated field to coding. Yeah, I think you're 100% right. Let's switch gears. Let's talk about kind of a little bit more what this podcast is about, and that's introducing headlines or topics that are tech and cybersecurity related that maybe the listener might find interesting. And this first story that I have, I just can't get enough of, just jumped off the page at me. And it's that Apple is going to be distributing to a select group of people hackable phones. They have built a phone that they call a security research device, an SRD. That's that's their official name. And they are going to be distributing these to people who sign up, who are part of their developer network. I think there's like a $99 fee Plus, you have to have a, a proven track record of successful bug bounty hunting, which I don't know how you <laughs> prove that. Uh, but mm. if you are one of those people and you sign up, they'll send you this phone for a one-year lease, and you can just play with it and basically break it. Uh, break it in a software sense, not actually throw it against the floor. Although I guess... I guess you could if you if you could prove there's some vulnerability if you break the screen. I was going to say, it doesn't really take any special qualifications to prove that you can break a cell phone. Either. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Too. <laughs> but uh, this was a really fun story because Apple is, is not known for pulling back the curtain on their processes and their development and you know they're, they're programming for their different features of their phones, especially when it comes to security and and this is a way that they are opening up the floodgates and saying, come, have a look at how we're doing things and pick it apart and let us know where we can improve. And uh, I saw it described as sort of an olive branch to the security research community that hasn't always been very receptive of Apple because of how closed knit they are. And... This is a way to extend the olive branch to them and say, hey, no, we want to work with you. We think we have a lot to gain. And then also identify some bugs in their programming and their devices. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, when you look at a company like Apple, Apple has, what, a hundred some odd thousand employees. Uh, many, many of them are in technical uh, 
positions within the company. And by opening up this bug bounty, they are kind of leveraging a vastly larger number of technically oriented people and giving them an opportunity to see if they can find any vulnerabilities in iOS. Bug bounties, as kind of the name implies, uh, there's compensation paid when a bounty is found. So the outside developer, the non-Apple employee developer that finds the bug can be paid by Apple. Apple gets a more secure device. The end user is a little bit better protected using their device day to day. It's really, it's a great concept. It's really just a a win-win all around. Yeah, the, the whole idea of bug bounties was introduced to me a couple months ago through another podcast, actually, uh, that was interviewing a person who has made a whole career out of going after these bug bounties. And just to provide a little bit more insight, this is a contractor, this is a freelance worker, this is a guy with a hobby who likes to go and take apart devices, web applications, software, and then instead of exploiting that or selling it on the dark web... Uh, they go back and they report it to the company that is hosting this service or develops this product. And depending upon how damaging that bug could be, they turn around and pay that bug bounty hunter a small sum and say, thank you. Thank you for your work. Thank you for not distributing this to the dark web. Yeah, please do it again if you can. You know, we'll give you another couple of months money. <laughs> There's a couple of sites that actually facilitate this. Uh, Hacker One, Open Bug Bounty are two different ones. You can obviously check out kind of what they have. But this idea of paying bug bounty hunters to find your vulnerabilities is not a new concept. There's plenty of organizations that have adopted this. Google, Facebook, Microsoft, the Ford Foundation, which is you know a group associated with Ford Motors, and then even the U.S. federal government who had a, a small program, I guess, called Hack the Pentagon. It's fun. This was, this was fun to uh, learn about. Apple is, is going to be sending these phones to people and they're going to have a year to play with it. I'm sure we'll learn some stuff. There are some skeptics who say that Apple isn't allowing enough access through this phone. By it being hackable, all they're doing is kind of taking away like the first couple layers of security, maybe the most difficult ones to get through. So you can get more down into the weeds of where other vulnerabilities could be, but it doesn't allow you all the way in. So there's still plenty of stuff kept hidden from these researchers. uh, And a lot of people are already criticizing apps. You got to start somewhere. Um, uh, yeah, you know, I think you, I think you hit the nail on the head. Uh, it's a, it's a baby step. It's a first step. They haven't condoned this sort of activity in the past, and they are now. So that by itself is a, is a huge thing. There's, I think, similar criticisms of Google in the Android operating system. Uh, Android operating system is open source, but there's significant parts of basically mandatory pieces of software that go with android that are not so google again obviously is a, is a participant in these bug bounties but they also are doing the same thing they do lock some of that software down and they don't allow they don't allow external reviews so they're right in the same boat i feel like as apple and there's a fine line to walk between uh maintaining your intellectual property and crowdsourcing your bug fixes um there, there's a line to walk and they're finding out which way and how they want to walk that line so I, i'm i'm in support of this this is great yeah, 
again, I, I really think it's a positive thing for everyone involved and it's going to lead to improvements in iOS. Yeah. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about just an epic folly in the hacker community. We'll be right back. So this next story I want to talk about is just absolutely hysterical to me. And I I want to preface very quickly that, you know, when we talk about cybersecurity threats and and things that go on, we're talking about very serious things. And I, I don't like to make light of very serious topics. However, it doesn't seem like anything serious came of this other than uh, some people look very silly. And considering how sophisticated they are, it makes it all the more better. But John, you shared a story with me this week about some Iranian hackers who were exposed uh, via some training videos that they uploaded to a server uh, that was being monitored by uh, an IBM cybersecurity research team. And it just, it feels like one of the most epic botched efforts ever sure yeah really very surreal yeah very surreal yeah you don't hear about these things very often you usually hear you know if somebody gets caught it's because they exploited a vulnerability in a system and when you do that when a threat actor exploits a system they obviously put themselves out there right they uploaded code to something they posted a ransomware message that said hey pay us this much money they, they expose themselves some, some way, but that didn't happen here. If I can uh, summarize very quickly, IBM's X-Force Incident Response Intelligence Services, which <laughs> is a mouthful, but it's also very captivating, right? When you read that and you see X-Force, <laughs> you, sure. you really, it grabs your attention. This is a, a cybersecurity research team that was monitoring uh, a server out in the wild, remote, uh, I'm sure you know nobody knew that IBM was was monitoring it. You know, however those mechanisms work, but an Iranian hacking group known as ITG18, or uh, more casually known as Charming Kitten, uh, uploaded 40 gigabytes of hacking training material to this server <laughs> that IBM was then wow. able to just pull down and uh, sift through, dissect. Uh, see what was in there. Included in the content was over five hours of videos showing exactly how the hackers would break into an email or a social media account, pull out as much information as they can. Some of the things that I saw they got, in addition to photos and contacts and you know whatever files you had on your Google Drive account, they also got things like pizza delivery schedules <laughs> and uh, hmm. financial aid information and, you know, what utilities you might uh, pay for your services. You might be asking yourself, why would they want this information? And 
clearly what they were trying to do was build a profile of the people that they were targeting, you know, so instead of just breaking into their email and their social media accounts and getting whatever they got there, you know, they had aspirations of breaking into their, you know, credit card information, banking information, mortgage, whatever else. And everybody's familiar with what is your mother's maiden name or what is the first street that you lived on? Uh, and that's how you get, you know, some of those information mm -hmm. is, is mm -hmm. taking things like that. So this group, uh, ITG 18 or charming kitten, they are an advanced persistent threat an APT. And John, you know, we've talked about these groups before. Do you want to enlighten the listener to what an APT is? Yeah. So an, a an APT an advanced persistent threat, uh, the definition is that it's a stealthy computer network threat actor, typically a nation state or state sponsored group which gains unauthorized access to a computer network and remains undetected for an extended period. So this is an APT is a group that infiltrates into a server, infiltrates into an email account, infiltrates into your home computer or work computer and stays there. So we often see things like denial of service attacks. We see things like vandalism of websites where kind of the, the impact is immediate. These are not immediate. These are these are infiltrations and and taking up residence in these compromised accounts. These are these are done by very serious hackers with very serious intentions that generally would go beyond your typical ransomware or even just virus infiltration. Uh, these are these are people looking to cause harm in the systems that they infiltrate. Yeah, and that's the that's the serious part of this story that I, I don't want to lose sight of, and I don't want to uh, gaslight. Advanced persistent threat actors, you know, they sit on systems. I I read a story recently, might have even been one of the ones we covered, where the threat actor, the advanced persistent threat, was in the system for four years. Yeah, just collecting data, collecting credit card numbers, or user profiles or emails or whatever um, learning learning their targets network and their system so these are very capable competent well-resourced well-organized groups well-funded groups well-funded groups yes absolutely and that's what makes this story all the more funny yeah <laughs> that this epic mess up of recording themselves which is mind-boggling to begin with. I mean, if you're training somebody how to hack these things, why you would feel the need to make a desktop recording that you want to share with other people and then upload to a server that, you know, I guess you're going to share with people remotely. I guess everyone's working from home, even the hackers. <laughs> even the hackers. But yeah, this just seems so silly to me. And you don't usually hear about these advanced persistent threat groups getting caught this way, or at least I don't. And it gives us a very rare look into not just their training materials, but their organization, uh, who's in their group. Uh, I imagine that IBM, who I don't think has released the information that they gathered, I think they released some screenshots, you know, just enough to you know, prove their point. Sure. Yeah. You don't want to actually release these training videos out into the public either, because that's what they are is, is tools to, you know, figure out how to hack people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. IBM probably learned a lot of information about Charming Kitten. I'm sure they're sharing that information with the rest of the cybersecurity community. 
I, I saw this when you sent it to me and I just thought, wow, wow, what an interesting development. And the cybersecurity community, these threat actors, the researchers, the NSA that we hear about so often, Edward Snowden. And one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast is it is a very entertaining space right now. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of characters. There's a lot of actors. There's, you know, these groups with names like Charming Kitten and Fancy Bear Equation Group, uh, IBM's X-Force Incident Response Intelligence Services or IRIS. There's... There's a lot of characters, a lot of information. Uh, if you follow any of these groups or individuals on Twitter, they're all very vocal. Uh, they all are very strongly opinionated people. And I liken it to a Bravo channel show that my mom absolutely <laughs> loves. And I give her a hard time about. But, you know, it's, it's captivating. It's drama. It's real life drama. Unfortunately, there's some real life effects and and that I like I say I don't want to make light of but yeah it's a, it's very entertaining and I'm trying to capture that here in this podcast and share it with my listeners cuz I think if you're missing out you know you're missing out yeah yeah the the primary thing that that drew me to this article as well was the humor factor yeah if you would think of of anyone that would be on the top of their game, cybersecurity wise, you think it would be one of these advanced persistent threat groups. You know, they should be at the top of their game. And they made a they made a probably a series of silly mistakes on this server that yeah. allowed IBM to listen in on it. Um, one of the things I guess I would like to, to point out, and this is, uh, I will say is a little bit of speculation because I am not a renowned security researcher, but the type of information that was that was released. So training videos. Training videos are not the sort of thing that you provide for experts. Yeah. They're the sorts of things you provide to probably people who are competent and in and, and general computer skills, but don't really know what, how they, if you ask them to hack a computer server, they would not know where to start. These were step-by-step, step, how do you hack a social media account? How do you hack a Google Drive? How do you hack uh, you know, contact book listed on a, on a contact directory. This was training materials in order to turn a person into a capable hacker. Yeah. And it didn't use expensive, one-of-a-kind, custom-made software to do it. They were using standard, they, uh, unfortunately, freely available tools to hack into these uh, accounts. And I think it just demonstrates uh, that... The threat from these APTs, you don't need to be, you know, the Stephen Hawking of cybersecurity to be an advanced persistent threat. This is, it's a very serious issue, but it can be done by generally, uh, by someone who followed a couple hours worth of training videos. Yeah, you actually nailed another note that I took, which was a lot of off-the-shelf tools were used, and it proves that you don't necessarily have to be a computer wizard or Jedi you know, you can be, to use this term that we haven't defined yet, a script kitty. <laughs> you know, with a little bit of training, you can wreck some real havoc. So, yeah, I really appreciate you sharing this one with me, John, because I just, I got a kick out of it. You got a kick out of it. I hope the listeners uh, got something out of it. And uh, I'm sure this won't be the last time we hear about a hacking group or an APT getting caught you know, because they made a, a stupid mistake. But sure, about this uh, very dangerous hacking group named 
charming kitten. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you, CrowdStrike, for that. <laughs> All right. Well, we've come to the end, John. I think this has been another success. I appreciate you doing this with me. As always, uh, I want to end the show. I want to ask you and, and obviously myself, you know, what is it that you have going on? We're headed into the weekend. What are you going to be working on? Uh, this weekend, Jason, this is weekend supposed to be nice. I'm going to hang out with some friends and, uh, and take my dog for a walk. It's going to be a nice weekend. How about you? <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Not tech related, but probably uh, very, very needed uh, in this uh, quarantine era that we live Agreed. in. Agreed. So, yes. Yeah, absolutely. I am going to start. I have a weekend to myself, and I am going to start uh, on my next uh, section of this course that I've been delving into and studying for a test for. Uh, and so this next book, it's called Threat Management. It's about 220 pages of slides and text. I'm really excited to get into it, but I'm also a little bit nervous because it, it's quite dense. And it'll be a, another uh, check in the checkbox uh, as far as getting through this course. So I'm, I'm really excited to have the weekend to work on. Quite dense as opposed to the uh, walks in the park you've been studying lately. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. That's the Router Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, you can connect with us. You can email us at therouterpodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter, at therouterpod. And we'll come back next week, and we'll do it all again. Thanks so much. Thanks, John. Thanks, Jason. Talk to you next week.